Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 298th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and today, for the first time in this podcast history, and we just celebrated our fourth birthday on September 6th, it is my great pleasure to welcome back a previous solo guest. Not for our usual chronological walk through a guest's life and career, which we did the first time this person joined us back on episode 198, which we released back on January 8th, 2018, but rather for a free-form conversation. The legendary Tom Hanks. The 63-year-old and I sat down at the Soho Metropolitan Hotel in Toronto on the morning after the world premiere of Mari Heller's new film, It's a Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, in which Hanks plays Fred Rogers, the beloved host of the children's television series, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. For the film, which is not a biopic of Rogers, but rather a drama about how Rogers changed the life of a magazine writer who came to profile him, Hanks has already garnered some of the best notices of his career and could be headed back to the Oscars as a nominee, this time in the category of Best Supporting Actor, for the first time in an astonishing 19 years. We're not going to get in the habit of bringing back previous guests on this podcast because with most of them, there's only so much to actually talk about. But Hanks is, frankly, a very special case, and I was thrilled to have the chance to sit down with him again. But first, I was joined at that same Soho Metropolitan Hotel by Matt Bellany, the editorial director of The Hollywood Reporter, to discuss the jam-packed first two weeks of the film awards season. Matt, thanks for coming in. No problem. So first and foremost, we're sitting here in Toronto. We are a little tired from last night when The Hollywood Reporter became, for the first time, a partner with the Hollywood Foreign Press Association on the big party of the Toronto International Film Festival. So I just want to ask you what your feelings are the next morning. It was great. If my voice is a little crabby, <laughs> that's because I was, uh, you know, talking loudly at people for four hours uh, at a party. No, it was really nice. It's great to see all the talent come out and they're really excited. They've got films to debut and talk about. You know, everyone's in a good mood. You know, as far as the award season goes, everyone's a winner yeah. at Toronto. There's yeah. no, you know, nobody's eliminated yet. And it was really great. The HRPA is going to be a good partner, so I hope to do it in the future. Yeah, and great turnout from stars. We had J-Lo coming right from the premiere of Hustlers. We had Eddie Murphy coming right from the premiere of Dolomite Is My Name. And just on and on, Adam Sandler, we can go on. So that was exciting. But let's go backwards for a minute, two weeks ago almost, to the the real start of the fall award season, which is the Venice Film Festival. It was highlighted by the world premieres of Marriage Story, Noah Baumbach's movie, very highly anticipated from Netflix, and Ad Astra with Brad Pitt. But 
the big story, it turns out, is Joker, this movie from Todd Phillips, best known for The Hangover, starring Joaquin Phoenix. How did this movie take over the the season? Well, first of all, it's really good. It's uh, you know, a it's going to get lumped into the comic book movie crowd, but it's really not. It is a 70s style, dark, gritty character study, exactly the kind of movie that critics go nuts over. It was really smart of Warner Brothers to premiere it at Venice to, you know, telegraph that this is not your father's <laughs> superhero movie. This right. is a different kind of thing. It's R-rated. It's super violent, really intense. It, it will be a little bit too much for some audiences. I think the Academy will probably like it a lot because, it, like I said, it does remind people of those kinds of Scorsese-era 70s gritty character movies. But it really puts that movie in the pole position at this point. I think going into the season, a lot of people thought that Joaquin Phoenix would be a contender right. for the performance, which is amazing. But now this is an all-category contender. And you know, just like last year with Bradley Cooper, who was sort of an untested, awards-oriented filmmaker, now Todd Phillips is smack in the middle of the race. And he has a lot more experience, obviously, than Bradley Cooper did as a director. But people don't know him as a prestige film director. They know him as the guy from The Hangover. Right. And I think what we're going to see over the next couple months is a transition where Todd Phillips becomes you know, an auteur-style yeah. filmmaker. And quite funny, in the same month in which Craig Mazin, who wrote the two sequels to The Hangover, is potentially going to win some Emmys for Chernobyl. So these guys have... And come a long way, including Bradley. But um, here's the secret, though: yeah. that The Hangover is actually a really good yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. Like, take away all the gross-out humor and everything; it's just a really well-made, well-executed movie. Yep. And you know, I think uh, kudos to Warner Brothers for recognizing that this filmmaker could take a turn and do something as dark, yeah. and as meditative as Joker. Yeah, that will screen here on Monday night. Some people are going to have to catch up with it on Tuesday because Monday night Toronto is doing something it's never really done before with a tribute gala. They're getting in the awards dispensing business, but the the first awards were from Venice and Joker won the golden line, the top prize, which previously last year went to Roma, sort of the presumptive runner up the year before went to shape of water, which won best picture at the end of the day. So that's can interesting. We, can we talk for a second about the second place winner? You read my mind <laughs> or at, uh, at Venice. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the fact that the Polanski movie, an officer and a spy won the grand jury prize, which is the, runner-up yes. position at Venice, that's a real wild card because this film doesn't even have a U.S. distributor. Right. And the question now is, is somebody going to take a chance on a Roman Polanski movie? Do you movie, think they will? Knowing that it's good and also knowing that you're stepping into a buzzsaw if you do so. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, no major studio would touch this. No. I don't think so. I mean, the, the man is a convicted child rapist who has been on the run for the past few decades and you know even though he you know was toasted by the academy for for the pianist they've now kicked him out of the academy yeah. he's suing to get back in the yeah. academy so i just don't see any major studio touching this but you never know with a smaller distributor someone who's you know likely to make a name yep. on this film you know there there might be an audience for it well and then there's nate parker who also won a prize at venice with uh, american skin oh, he, what did he win he won the the category that his film was screening in he won that prize for his movie american skin his first film since the birth of a nation followed by all of his controversy but, so, but the reviews for his film weren't that good i saw it in la and i thought it was i thought it was interesting it's it's sort of a contemporary set 
story about white cops and black youth, unarmed youth, sort of having one of these too frequent conflicts or, or run-ins, and then it kind of becomes 12 Angry Men and Dog Day Afternoon in one. But I, I just, I think these days, you know, people are so cautious, especially, I mean, Nate Parker with Birth of a Nation and then his fallout after that was bad enough, but then Me Too came after that. Right. So now... I just wonder if people will take the take any. But you know, he had Spike Lee standing next to him at all the events, and you know, let's not forget he was not convicted. Exactly, he was was exonerated in the trial. So you know, I I don't know. I think the reviews I saw were not positive. So when I saw those, I said, oh, you know, probably not going to be something someone takes a chance on. But you know, if, if the Venice Film Festival endorsed it, you know, maybe they will. Telluride overlapped a bit with Venice and the big stories there, oddly for a festival that really prides itself on first anywhere screenings were movies that had screened elsewhere. So you had Parasite, which was the big winner at Cannes, came in and and had its first North American screenings, went over really well. Marriage Story, again, via Venice was great. The big world premieres though, were the two popes who are played by Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins, a very unlikely but King's Speech-esque kind of crowd pleaser. Judy with Renee Zellweger as Judy Garland in the last year of her life and getting the kind of reviews that means she she could win a second Oscar. And Ford versus Ferrari. I just wonder, you know, from from L.A., what was your sense of how things were going down in Telluride? I mean, those are films that I haven't seen. And, you know, I was relying on people at – actually, I was talking to people at the – THR HFPA party last night and three separate people who are rival distributors said Mm -hmm. that Renee Zellweger will win an Oscar for this performance as Judy. The film so-so or, you know, not, not a, an all category contender, but she is so good in this role. I really can't wait to see it. That's how I felt when I saw in Telluride. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that also it helps, as you know, the narrative behind the performance is sometimes just as important as the performance. And here she's playing a woman who later in her career was sort of just cast out and beaten down and whatever. Uh, and then I won't, you, you know, get into how the movie itself ends. But Renee Zellweger, it's been 16 years since her last Oscar nomination. She was once America's sweetheart. Now she's sort of, you know, she had become in a, in a way, and some people were kind of cruel about it, but a bit of a, a object of, of jokes and mockery for various reasons. It's quite a comeback narrative. There's one thing people in this town like more than knocking somebody down it's bringing them back up i think so yeah i i can't wait to see i've always loved renee zellweger uh, i was just watching jerry Maguire the other day yes. <laughs> <laughs> but the other yeah. one that people said is they were everyone was surprised that joker has been doing so well yeah. you know, in, in the screenings uh, everyone wanted to see it and then two popes yeah seems to be a breakout i really think that one is i think netflix so far in the early going seems to have put its chips sort of half on Marriage Story, half on The Irishman, which we'll see open the New York Film Festival on September 27th. But I really think The Two Popes is the kind of crowd pleaser that could win the audience award here in Toronto and that could take on a a life of its own with, you know, in the way that the King's Speech did. But we will see. The big world premieres here in Toronto have been Hustlers last night really blew up. Our review was terrific. This is J-Lo, Cardi B, and a whole bunch of other women based on a true story. You've got Our guest on this episode, Tom Hanks, playing Fred Rogers in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Just Mercy with Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx, a lawyer and his client, trying to uh, rectify an injustice on death row in Alabama. And then Dolomite Is My Name, the Eddie Murphy kind of comeback also via Netflix. 
what's your sense is any i mean hustlers kind of broke out yeah hustlers seems interesting because people are saying that jennifer lopez has an awards caliber supporting performance here where she plays this kind of seasoned stripper who ends up leading this crew uh in their you know crime spree i think tom hanks is fantastic in a beautiful day in the neighborhood every minute he's on screen you just can't help but smile and it's not a you know there's no prosthetics there's no you know no costume he's just inhabiting mr rogers and because there's such goodwill for mr rogers and such goodwill for tom hanks you just you're along for the ride the whole time do you think it's limited to tom's performance which i now sort of seems the consensus is that that would be a supporting performance or do we think it can go beyond that and do i don't know it's an interesting film because you know people see the ads and they think oh it's a mr rogers movie but it's actually about the Matthew Reese character right. who's a journalist and his journey with his father and using Mr. Rogers as sort of a springboard for discovery in himself. And we'll see how the Academy thinks of it because the centerpiece performance is this supporting performance right. from Tom Hanks. I love the way one other journalist put it last night, which is that it she felt it was a Mr. Rogers episode for adults where you basically oh, totally. learn things and feel good, but yeah. but not in a... not being talked down to absolutely and it's it's not you know the the matthew reese performance is not showy it's not you know it's it's not he plays a journalist but it's fictionalized so we'll see chris cooper is also excellent in the movie he is let's just close by noting that there are still a lot of movies here to premiere in the coming days at toronto jojo rabbit harry jojo rabbit is amazing i've seen that okay and it is going to really really rock people when they see it it's so i mean yes it's a hitler comedy (laughs) it's about a child in world war ii who has an imaginary friend who's hitler but it is so funny and irreverent and taika waititi's voice in this film absolutely comes through he plays hitler and directs right so i could actually see that taking home the audience award okay I haven't seen Two Popes yet, but that people say that one, Just Mercy, yep. went over really well. Yep. The the anti death penalty movie with uh, Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Foxx, that went over really well with the audience that saw it on uh, Friday night. And they still are going to see Joker. So I right. mean, that could if that's such a crowd blazer, we'll see. But so also though, Harriet, nobody nobody's seen that yet. Cynthia Revo as Harriet Tubman, Lucy in the Sky with Natalie Portman, and the list goes on. We should remember that last year, it wasn't until the sixth day of the festival when many journalists had already gone home that a little movie called Green Book had its world premiere here and went all the way to win the Audience Award and the Best Picture Oscar. So a lot more to look forward to. Thank you for coming in and talking about it with us, Matt Bellany. No problem. Thanks. And now for my conversation with Tom Hanks. Tom, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast it's two years since the post uh, oh is that right that was okay. the last oh, I remember one that. you are our first returning guest oh, which man. really uh, oh is that the, a special is that, thing is that the gift wrap thing <laughs> that's out front i get a little little toaster a little toaster me? exactly like thanks but congratulations last night i was lucky to be there for the first anywhere screening of beautiful day in the neighborhood and i want to come to that in depth later on but i mean just overall it seems to have gone over pretty unbelievably a lot of times film festivals are the place positive buzz goes to die, you know? I've been here on a couple of couple of times. Not here, but actually, no. You know, there's been times you come to, a, you know, there, there's a number of film festivals where 
It's like the official beginning of some sort of like attention season. And I have been on both sides of the uh, both sides of the spectrum of, uh, hey, that didn't go as well as we were hoping. But this... they, didn't, they didn't seem to like it as much as we do. Was it palpable? Though? Can you or how do you evaluate how a movie's gone? Well, I, I actually I think the only way you can do it is to judge it based on how cynical the interviews are on, on the next day. I, I'm serious. Really? Because there, it's, in a lot of ways, that brand of cynicism is like a default setting, particularly yeah. in a gladiatorial contest of thumbs up or thumbs down right. on a film. Because a lot of times they're just fans of the fact that they're seeing a movie, right. period. Right. And they're celebrating, you know, the Toronto of it all and the film festival of it all. And they're willing participants in seeing a movie for the first time. That that doesn't necessarily mean that on the, the deeper ripples of whatever, uh, you know, stone you've thrown into the opinion lake right. are, are going to carry through. I both, I think it really just is, is what's going to be the discussion you're going to have the next day? If they're having a discussion of why in the world did you make this movie at all? Or <laughs> or um, what is the agenda that you've set because of this movie? Or right. how dare you think blah, blah, blah. <laughs> or they're talking about the corporate, you know, the corporate strategy from releasing. Right. Then, you know, you didn't get them. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't get them on, a, on a, just a basic human storytelling. How about... Who do you trust that you know who's sort of in the inner circle that you can count on to give you their own honest opinion? Well, the old saying is, is tell the truth in previews, but lie through your teeth at the premiere. You know, uh, I think the people that have maybe, well, you know, there's somebody we have an office, we have yeah. a company uh, and you can't waste time yeah. on being nice. And whether it's our own movie or somebody else's we really do have a you know let's have a come to jesus moment did we do it or not movies i think are binary they're either double zeros or there's zero one mm -hmm. they either work or they do not mm -hmm. after that it's all a crapshoot you know is it going to fit into the zeitgeist of the world at the right. time that it comes out but before any of that is does it work did we achieve telling the story that we all thought we were telling and if it's a double zero, you cannot change it no matter what. <laughs> if it's a zero one, right. well, then you move on to the next, you play now the $200 crap right. tables. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, that's the limit. How much are we going to lose or how, how much can we turn a profit on this? I want to ask you about the zeitgeist of it all, because to your point that you just made, I remember with the post, I think you guys made it right before the whole war on the press and all of that had not really revved up to the extent yeah, that it did. Yeah, we didn't realize that, yeah, we were actually making a movie about the First Amendment right. before we realized that so there was somebody out there tearing down the First Amendment. Yeah. yeah, and so I guess I just wonder, in your experience with so many movies that people have really paid attention to, can you remember specifically a time when the zeitgeist maybe helped the project and then a time when it hurt it? Let me tell you, when we produced Band of Brothers yeah. for HBO, that really, Stephen and I had done Saving Private Ryan, yeah. that when it came out, we were just at the end of the lifespan of the people we were talking about, right. the generation that we were talking about. And there hadn't been a true World War II movie made that wasn't a caper film or about, you know, stealing something or what have you. And because it was that kind of like big ask the day of days kind of thing, yeah. we ended up hitting this kind of like spot that hadn't been itched for a really long time. And so out of that came this massive amount of dialogue 
not just from a historical perspective, but from a very personal perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, guys who were 19 years old when they went through that. Right. By the time we finished Band of Brothers, what I love about that is you get to expand on whatever tiny theme you had about seven minutes to examine in a movie. Well, now you have about seven hours that you can examine. We premiered before 9-11. Mm-hmm. And then 9-11 happened. Mm-hmm. And we had no idea if anybody wanted to see a story about combat, World War II, Nazis, these guys. And I think we were off the air for about two weeks, as the entire world took about two weeks to try to recover from it. Uh And we thought this could be really the most inappropriate moment to continue on this story. Uh It turned out to be a tonic. It turned out to be, I think, a a reestablishment of our sort of a moral compass that had been knocked askew by 9-11, meaning a cause and effect, meaning a, it was like a measure of some, the more barbaric aspect of civilization, but still it was one in which there was a rationale to it. There was a geography that made sense. So I would say that was one time when a zeitgeist ended up surprising us. Yeah. In regards to like doing, you know, doing the, the workforce or not, when we actually like landed on something, I think I'd have to go back to Forrest Gump gave everybody a chance, I think, to put an awful lot of stuff behind us simply because Lieutenant Dan lost his legs in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. That ended up being right about the time that enough of Vietnam had happened and other things had gone on so that we could address it in a way on purely human and actually unspoken terms. Mm-hmm. There's a moment when that movie that I think made an awful lot of people ponder the last 30 years of their lives, and it came when Lieutenant Dan walks up with his wife, who is an Asian wife, and I look down at his legs and Forrest says, magic legs, and it would, there's a moment between the two of them that just put Vietnam to bed for mm-hmm. them. That we didn't know we were landing on that, but we landed on that. And I think it was really quite profound in a way that, you know, was part of a much bigger kind of uh, sort of like the end of uh, history that mattered. Yeah. You know, I don't know if there's anyone out there whose entire filmography is more familiar to more people today, you know, in terms of I'd like active to thank people. The, I'd like to thank the VHS people, <laughs> the, the DVDs, repeatable right. DVDs. Uh, somewhere right now, something in my library is playing on a on a grid, on a TV remote somewhere. You can just press channel 405. Yep. And there's something playing on mine. Is that a good feeling? I know you. last time you were on, we talked about how in some ways maybe it reinforces a certain screen persona from your most famous roles that... I don't know, would you say it it can feel hard to break out of that because of the fact that you're just constantly on repeat? Or how do you regard the fact that it's it's a great point that you are the VHS era's, you know, vanguard? At the end of the day, it's to be ignored because it's just what the status of the technology is right now. There's nothing you could do in order to change it. On occasion, a wonderful thing happens is that someone says, you know... I had never, <laughs> I had never seen hologram for the king. Yeah, you know, and I was alone in a hotel room, going out of my mind when I saw this movie that no one paid any attention to. Right. And when that happens, well, you know, thank goodness for video on demand, you know, or you know, a streaming service that this guy got lost on somehow. <laughs> it, it, it's across the board. I don't think it's for any one individual. Is that because you can see anything you want to, you can study anything you want to at your fingertips? This miracle machine does provide a sort of access of of examination that is just an extension of the power of a movie's individuality anyway i mean you i think anybody would be not surprised when they realize that you know i've only seen this movie twice 
But I remember, or even once, but I remember specifically this very powerful moment. Well, now you can watch the movie 15 times in a week and come back around, and it doesn't make the moment more or less powerful. It still really does land on, on it right there. And that's different. We had a version of this when I was a kid, which was once a year, CBS aired The Wizard of Oz, mm -hmm. a movie that did not do well in 1939 when it came out. It was not a hit in any way. It didn't make, wasn't commercially successful. It didn't become, uh, you know, a cultural touchstone until it played on Sunday night on CBS once a year, beginning in like 1955 or whenever it was that it be they began. Playing. And you would always watch it? Well, it was how you mark your calendar. Yeah. It was like the opening of the baseball season or Easter week or Halloween. It came around once, and guess what you did? The whole family <laughs> sat down, you watched. Uh, uh, it took me years before I could watch those flying monkeys. They scared the living daylights <laughs> out of me. But that is a, the exact same thing you have now with easily repeatable viewings, except... You know, now it's on Dexedrine. You can do it as much as you want. But that's not a bad thing. It's just a super, super extended version of a, having a really good revival house in your neighborhood. What's the movie that got away in the sense that it deserves to be familiar to people from, you know, you mentioned Hologram for the King. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Are there other, what's the one that you feel the strongest about as far as people should have seen this movie? Well, First of all, that's always in the eye of the whole, yeah, yeah. you know, because Vox Populi is the only thing that matters here. But I, the, the, I made a movie called Cloud Atlas. That was the deepest throw of anything I've ever been involved with. Premiered at this festival. Uh, it, that's right. It did. And by the way, that was one in which we felt as though this is the most magical movie I've ever been. And, and, and the audience, at least in the crowd, agreed. But it didn't happen elsewhere because we didn't realize we were, of course, you have to realize this, is you're going from a very personal experience to a very public experience. It's like, I feel really lucky about number 42. But then in the lotto, it doesn't even come up. You know, it's uh, you're, you're talking about a sweepstakes that right. you that you end up losing. But both the way it was constructed and the way the Wachowskis cast a big ensemble and had us all play multiple parts, because mm -hmm. on one hand, it's thematically kind of interesting to do that. But on the other side, you could never have made the movie. There were just too many speaking parts. It wouldn't mm. hardly been a movie. And I felt that that thing there tested the cinematic narrative so far that it delighted me and a handful of others. Mm -hmm. But that testing of the narrative really flummoxed people. Yep. And as soon as, if they're flummoxed for more than seven minutes in a movie, they're done. That's the line. <laughs> That's it. You got seven minutes to deflummox them. Oh and if gosh. you don't, Hopefully, people will come back and revisit it in 20 years. And that happens again and again in cinematic history. There are films that, when they came out, were almost incomprehensible yeah. to an audience. And then somewhere, you know, farther on down the line, people take to it and just say, where's this thing been? You want an example of it? it was, I think it was a rights issue that It's a Wonderful Life yeah. it was called Capricorn yeah, when yeah. it came out. <laughs> and everybody dismissed it as right. this kind of like too fuzzy of a Christmas movie. And then it disappeared for about 20 years. And when it came back on, I'm going to say in their 70s, when it came on, it's like, I remember seeing that and just think, this is one of the coolest movies I've ever seen. And since then, it's become a movie that's so often imitated that you can't take it. But there's, a, I guess, another situation where the zeitgeist matters. I mean, it's 46, just after the war. Right. Who wants to think about all the depressing things in their life and all the, re you know, I guess the uplifting part you have to get to, though, where it might have been a tough sell at that You know, point. I think I think also that there was a couple of other films that banged that, and rightly so, like you take the best years of our lives, which wasn't yeah. 46, I think it was like more like 48, 49.
Best years, 46. Uh, was it 46? Oh, dear Lord. Yeah. So, honestly, yeah. that's... If you want to put something specifically behind you, yep. have somebody really smart examine this theme, well, they did that. So I don't know if you have room for another yeah. examination of yeah. what that is. Isn't it interesting, though, how thin the line can be between a movie working or not working? Like with, So you mentioned Cloud Atlas, but I mean, I think about Forrest Gump, which I believe would probably be the biggest success, quote unquote, commercially of your career. And the fact that when you really break it down— People had to care about a guy who has sort of an unspecified mental challenge yeah. and is a pretty odd guy. And I just feel like that one could have gone very wrong. Not much in one way or the yeah. other, right? It was. I think it was a thing that on paper it was fraught with disaster, but in reality— it was something else. It was completely different than it was on the page or in the idea. I know that there were big-time show business professionals who actually ran the roost for a while and just said, you cannot release any movie called Forrest Gump, you know, <laughs> in July. They're just not going to sit for it. And then also along, you know, the, the logline elevator pitch of this, a mentally handicapped blah, 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 Ken, blah, 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 blah. And everybody says, well, I've seen that movie 15 times. <laughs> Bob Zemeckis cannot make a movie that people have ever seen before. He has to constantly stretch the boundaries. That being said, you know, we went into it thinking that cinematically, Bob had this whole kind of thing that I couldn't even understand of what he was going to do. But we also had weeks, and this was the first time this happened, we had weeks where everybody in the movie, me, Michael T., Sally, Gary, Robin was not available, but she was, and Eric, who wrote it, and Bob, we sat in a room much like this in a hotel for two weeks, and we started on page one and went all the way through to the end, and then went right back to page one and went all the way through to the end and went back to page one, went all the way through to the end, and everybody got to talk about anything they wanted to, scenes they were not in, yeah. moments that they had to figure out. It ended up being, for Bob, he wanted there to be no... And this is this is since I've entered this into my lexicon of it. There could be no mistaking what the scene is about. He said, every scene has a red dot. <laughs> and we all had to know what that red dot was. Because on the day when the crew is, you know, the sun is going down and the generator is running and the kids have to go back to school and blah, blah, blah. Everybody has to. You can't have being arguments. Of, what did he really say that here? That was one aspect of why we were doing it. But the other one was it was to establish the logic of the movie vis-a-vis -vis the logic of Forrest. And that's where, man, we had some major changes of direction in the course of doing that. Because Eric had written pretty much a fantastic, you know, fantasy with cartoons and things coming out and, um, you know, like, like visions of the way Forrest saw the world uh, that was almost like an, you know, Walt Disney, Mary Poppins run amok. Right. But... I think the, the best example of it is, as it had been, our Vietnam sequences. And we didn't know we were making a movie about Vietnam when we started. The Vietnam sequences were kind of like Buck Privates. Mm -hmm. It was like Abbott and Costello mm -hmm. being training and then going. All these things were happening by accident. And Gary, God bless him, his brother or brother-in-law had been in Vietnam. And he just said, we can't do that. We can't do that to these guys. And we then got into a discussion of, like, how can we put this essentially comedic yeah. character in Vietnam, and from that came this sensibility of this. This was a big deal. We were saying, you know, 
the, the training sequences was like, Bob, we can't make fun of this because these guys' lives are going to be in jeopardy. We can't have the Forrest Gump doing things. And Bob said, well, what if he's the best guy in the platoon? <laughs> I said, I'm not saying I said I don't want to be that kind of that yeah. kind of guy. And, here, and then I and I entered into that. On a, for me, searching for the lockup, I said, well, that makes total sense because Forrest always does what he is told. And that began this long thing that ended up governing the movie that I think was never stated but was palpable. Mm -hmm. And therefore, there was no nonsense, oddly enough. There's no nonsense in Boris Gump, despite the fact that he meets every president and, you know, <laughs> is in all these places. Right. Oh, that could happen. I think that's one of the... Re I, I look, that's, it is wildly successful. Our joke at the time was if we had only made $100 million, we would have been geniuses. Right. But because we made three times as much, we were diabolical <laughs> geniuses, you know? Well, one question that that sort of raises in my mind, I mean, how many of your films have you actually had any rehearsal time on? And before you answer that, I just... I understand the financial realities of filmmaking, that it, it's hard to get everybody together, it costs a lot of money, but... Wouldn't it actually, based on the times that you have had it, like a Forrest Gump, that enhances the movie so much that it it would be worth it in the end? Well, not every movie is rehearsable, quite frankly, yeah. because you're, you're outside, you know, you got a scattering a moment of capturing reality that really lasts about 47 seconds on screen. But there are other movies that, thank God you can, for example, Nora's movies, Nora Ephron, both Sleepless in Seattle and You've Got Mail, we had scenes that lasted for 14 pages, and they took place in a house. So we would actually, just like in the theater, tape out the set and have props and do it, and we would rehearse those scenes, and number one, we completely understood what the scenes were. The lines were down. They were ready to shoot. But number two, Nora knew exactly then what happened and where you could put the camera. And stuff happened by accident in rehearsals that we then would incorporate into what was going on. Not every—look, I've, uh, I've made movies both ways. No rehearsal whatsoever and rehearsal in an intense fashion in order to just get to the bottom of it. I think the place where it really— it's not necessarily an aid to the actor, but it can be to the filmmakers in movies like with intrigue in it, you know, or like the scavenger hunt movies that I made with Ron, you know, the Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons and yeah. Inferno. That kind of stuff ends up us pacing around in a room just like this, a rehearsal hall, and it doesn't really do us any good, the actors. But it helps out Ron, you know, be able to come and I oh, steady cam here, crane here, come in tight here. It helps him make the shot list. But for us, the actors, I didn't feel as though anything really mattered until we actually got on the set and we're doing it in the real physical space. Every generation, it seems like, has their cinematic stand-in for the American everyman, right? So probably Jimmy Stewart is the, the most famous Can you go one. back a little farther than that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I yeah. guess so, yeah. And even and, uh, now there's others, too. It seems like at a certain point, you came to be regarded as that guy, even if sometimes you play an executioner or you play a, <laughs> yeah. you know, whatever. It, that, yeah. that is sort of in the back of people's heads in, in a lot of cases. When did that start? Do you remember? You know, I'll tell you this briefly. So Brian Grazer told me this. Honestly, this was Splash. This was the first yeah. real movie that I was in. That was back when, like, magazine articles really mattered as far <laughs> as, you know, getting the movie out. And he was talking to some guy, and so uh, the journalist said... Uh, so this new guy, uh, Hanks, do you think he's like the next Jimmy Stewart or the next Cary Grant? 
and you know the producer of the movie has to you know glad hand the journalist somehow mm-hmm. and so he went on this long thing about well you know he's got this da, 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 and he said you know Cary Grant had this and Cary Grant was that and that Cary Grant said I'd say Cary Grant you know and then, but the journalist said yeah but don't you think he's more like Jimmy Stewart so right there it becomes this kind of like thing. My, you think that was the, the just the conversation that got it, picked up? Yeah, because look, I think that you cannot deny a countenance that the actor has mm-hmm. that either fits in the movie and fits in the role or does not. Mm-hmm. The challenge that I knew of relatively quickly mm-hmm. as a guy who wanted to do, you know, I wanted to have longevity mm-hmm. was that if I'm just going to rely on the countenance, I'm sunk because I'll only be able to do this kind of thing. You know, I even said at some point, I don't want to play the guy who is <laughs> the guy who can't get laid, right. who, you know, can't understand why his <laughs> blank is failing and therefore needs to blank. I can't I can't I, I, I need to do something other than. Well, that. I quoted back to you on the last episode. There was one time where you collectively described those guys as pussies. pussies. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't mean that. in a, No, I, know. Know, I mean that is in a behavioral <laughs> right, manner right. as opposed to an anatomical. But one. you felt that. If somebody had never seen Tom Hanks before, saw your face that time, their default would be, this is going to be the guy that's sort of like wide-eyed, discovering yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and God knows that was, that was the coin of the realm for a long time. Yeah. Those type of movies were being made constantly. It was the guy who lied about being know how to, uh, he, he can really ski well. No, he can't. So therefore, the girl doesn't know he can't ski. There's an awful lot of movies like that. And I realized that, you know, I have a non-threatening You know, I have this body. This is what I sound like. This is what I look like. This is what my body language is. And with a slight degree of faith in whatever the aging process was going to be, I knew, you know, as you get older, what are you going to do? But push did come to shove at some point when I said all across the board, take these off. Yeah. Number one, I'm I'm done it 19 times. Number two, I'm too old to do it now. And number three, I want to do stories about bitter compromise. And those guys didn't have stories about bitter compromise. And not long after, I think the the first movie that came along after that was uh, League of the Roman Penny Marshall, in which a character had a history outside the immediacy of his own failings. But as far as the the American thing goes, I never viewed myself as anything other than an examination of the American male state. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what I always have been, because at the end of the day, I think that's what movies have to do, is capture the way the world operates right now. Even if you're making a period movie, it still has to be the way the world operates right now. As a kid, who were the film actors who you most connected with? Well, before... I didn't pay any attention to any individual actors. Yeah. There were movies that, that, you know, really were extremely moving to me. But when I began to, like, look at film as something other than a way to blow an afternoon or, you know, to go out on a date with, the first guy that really nailed me was Robert Duvall. I took a class at Chabot Junior College, mm-hmm. community college. It was literally a film appreciation class. And we saw a movie called The Rain People that Francis Ford Coppola made, disappeared. James Caan was in it, as well as uh, the beginning of the Francis Coppola yeah. um, repertory company. Robert Duvall was in it. And he, it was a heartbreaking thing. And I vaguely remembered this guy. He looked familiar. And then later on, I realized he played Boo Radley mm-hmm. in, uh, in To Kill a Mockingbird. 
So the movie starts at that time. We're Warren Beatty. They were all huge, big, you know, John Wayne was still around. He was mm -hmm. doing all that stuff. The big stars were really big, big, big movie stars. But that's when I discovered my own repertory cinema at, uh, in Berkeley, a thing mm -hmm. called the UC Cinema, that the guy was going broke trying to play Listomania and Tommy <laughs> in front of seven people in a in a 1,500-seat house. <laughs> and then they, they said, we're just going to do a different double bill every night. And you started seeing movies like, you know, like I saw all of James Dean movies in one night. I started going on my own. And between Robert Duvall and uh, Jason Robards, those were the guys, because they did not look like movie stars. They were not icons, you know. They weren't John Wayne, and they weren't James Bond movies. Mm -hmm. uh, they weren't Boris Karloff. They just looked kind of like people, you know. And they sounded just sort of like people, but they were more fascinating. They weren't glamorous. They were authentic. They were crazy real. I, you couldn't, I couldn't catch them you know, with a hitch in their step or performing. They weren't performing. I didn't think there was any possibility to be a screen actor. I, that, that happens on, on some other plane of existence. But those are the guys I started paying attention to. It was really hip also, you know, the De Niro and the Pacino yeah. when they were young, they were coming out. But I, di I didn't quite have the same access to them that I ended up having to these other guys. And when you were coming up doing theater, doing whatever, would people who were familiar with you and your work have categorized you as a comedy guy? Yeah, I, the ingenue. Yeah, yeah, yeah light, com light comedian, the funny guy. So I guess with the possible exception of nothing in common, the first time you really got to do drama on screen would have been Philadelphia. So why did what did it take for somebody to see that other side of you? Why did that happen? I don't know. Uh, probably because I just said yes to everything that came down the pike because I couldn't believe they were asking me to be in a movie. But did you think you could do drama? What did it, or did it take that for you to feel confident doing drama? No, I, I did not feel as though I could do it until I understood what it took. Even in, look, I will tell you, I could walk you through every episode of Bosom Buddies, <laughs> in which, okay, here we're knocking it dead, here we're nailing it, here we're setting each other up, one, two, three, four, you know, that, that kind of thing. Right. But even in there, there were a couple of moments where I said they gave me, or Peter and I worked out, a shot where it was actually a genuine it wasn't just a comedic kind of thing. Uh, there was, there's, I remember there was one specifically in which I had an art show that went badly, but the last image of it was me beholding my painting, and it was a nice moment. Now, it wasn't long. didn't get laughed, but the closing credits, you know, produced by Don Van Atta went by. <laughs> so I was always seeking some expansion of that horizon, that spectrum. You can't do it artificially. You can't say, I'm going to make a drama and I'm going to knock people out. Well, you know, you don't get to decide if the people are knocked out or not. <laughs> they, they actually, they actually decide that. So there was a desire, certainly it kind of like went along with the same area of I don't want to play pussies anymore. Right that there were, part of it is getting older, part of it is taking more responsibility for all of your actions, you know, not just your professional choices, to get to a place where, you know, I, I think I had something more to offer, and I trusted that I could get my countenance to reflect that material. I'm glad it happened in the timing that it did, because if I had been handed over a chance, I think I would have faked it. And that's the death. That's the death of any motion picture. When you're not telling the truth, you're just pretending. Did you ever go into one of these projects that people have certainly, you know, that have, has had a wide audience and literally as things got going, not believe you could pull it off? Did you have to kind of fake it till you can make it on, 
on anything that you're there is a there is a faith you can have in the the, uh, the serendipity of it all that you as long as you can try to walk away and feel honest about your efforts where that's that's all you can do then you just have to hope that it's a zero one and not a zero <laughs> zero and that you know that that happens there are plenty of movies that think they're you know the dailies were great right. the cut went fine they're going to fix this thing and it just never ever works right. and there's other things where you know the dailies were okay uh, who knows if it's going to cut together we think it's okay it's a little long let's trim this thing out and when it comes out it just all kinds of works when i first saw apollo 13 uh, i was disappointed i mean i saw it by myself and i just said well because I just knew so much more of the material. And I thought, why are we dumbing this down for something? Because you were the big, your space was your yeah. passion. I was saying things like, you know, the, the, quarter, the, the quarter corrective burn didn't last that long. You know, I was, I was like, I right. was that guy that was just constantly, no, it wasn't, right. that wasn't like that. But it ended up being, by not living up to my expectations, it actually had a much, much broader understanding to it. The thing that I have learned is you must have no expectations of it whatsoever. It's an absolute minefield. And once you realize that, it actually is, is liberating because all you can do is, is get there and, and get to the truth as, as, as much as possible. I don't want to overuse that word, the truth, but there is a thing that you're trying to capture that it has to live in the exact moment that the film is running through the camera. And if you got it, you got it. But if you don't, you, you don't. You, you never will. And then you just have to hope that somehow in this game of Texas Hold'em we have this, you know, in a two and a three that you have in your hand is actually going to lead to an inside straight. <laughs> <laughs> Not that it does all the time. Over, over the years, has the percentage of consideration of what, of what goes into choosing a part changed as far as this is something I want to do versus this is something I should do for, oh, no, for the career. It's, all, it's actually completely altered because I, I don't have to do anything anymore. I do not have to make, I don't have to pay my rent. Right. You know, I'm, I'm financially comfortable. After that, it's like I, <laughs> I have this conversation all the time because my wife and I are in, we're both doing these very creative things yeah. with her music as well as her acting career and, and my writing and uh, and this other day job I have, there's only two reasons to do anything. Right. And that is because it could be really good or it could be really fun. Right. There's no other criterion than that. Would it be good for my career? I'm 73. My career is, you know, I, I'm not like hoping to finally hit the height when I'm 70. <laughs> I'm 63, excuse me. Yeah, did I say 63? You, uh, you said 73. Oh, okay. I was saying, well, uh, what, the, what I meant to say was I'm 63, 63 right. now. I'm not really working towards hitting right. the heights at 73. Right. Right. You know what I mean? So it all comes down to now is, is it great? Sometimes, is it great? Yes, it is, but the theme is not worth examining. Would it be fun? Yeah, it could be, but I don't really think it's going to really add much to the, the, to the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. So it has to be this other version. And boy, this could be really good, or this could be really fun. It's even best when it's, when it's, when it's both. The building of a career and the choices that you make, I think I, I think I and anybody else would probably waste an awful lot of time thinking there is some rationale to that. So for you, how does the agent and other advisors, how, what is their primary function for you? Is it just to gather material and, and weed it down for you? Or like, because I asked, like, there's not a part of you that says, you know, I want to 
makes 12 cloud atlases, but that's that's not going to uh, you know I can lose you can lose an audience that way. Well, yeah, I, I, the honestly the the. There are some, I guess there are some relationships that someone is out there who's beaten the bushes. Well, my, my agent is Richard Lovett yep. at CAA, and he likes to think of himself as the most important agent and the world's <laughs> largest talent agency. None of those things are true, but he, I, I tell him that, oh, sure you are, <laughs> all the time. What, what, I th what, I, what you want to be able to have now is two things, a certain degree of business acumen, mm -hmm. you know, because I, I'm not negotiating these deals, but also an understanding of here's what's important. What the important is is the best thing that will get the movie made. There's other times where what's most important is something else, but the most important thing is what gets the movie made. And you do want somebody out there who has their finger on the pulse of an awful lot of material. But then you also want a genuine kind of feedback that you can get. Now, I don't need to tell you that there's built-in conflict of interests you know <laughs> what directors can we well you know right. who would be work who would be the great director well this list of caa yeah. clients <laughs> would be magnificent right. so you have to you have to go bar, go through that but it, there is there's no substitute for taking to a piece of material in a big big way and uh you know this it gets to me in it through any number of uh, of of avenues well so for some of the more outside the box decisions that you made. I want to just ask you what the thought process was. When, you know, in hindsight, Toy Story was a, look, here we are 24 years later, and there's another one, and people are still loving it. But at the time, just to remind folks, there had never been an entirely com computer animated feature film. There had never been a Pixar film. And I don't know that you had ever voiced the character. I don't know that you'd ever made a movie that was primarily targeted at young children. Why do that? Because none of that mattered. What mattered was is that it's a different form of, of, of acting, artistic expression, mm -hmm. which I never had, which I'm open to. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing was it, it made absolute sense the very first moment I saw a second of it. I don't care if it's a new form of animation. I, that doesn't matter to me. Mm -hmm. They had taken a line from my other Disney movie, <laughs> Turner and Hooch, right. and they put it in Woody. And he was flailing his fists and don't eat the car, don't eat the car. <laughs> and it was just on this loop that played over and over again. And just that, I said, oh, oh okay, I see what you're going for here. After that, you got to learn the, the technology and the format. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard work, you know, because it's literally working on a mic just like this. But everything starts off as a one-off possibility. Is it a zero-zero or is right. it a zero-one? Right. And I will tell you that on Toy Story 1, we recorded and they animatic an entire version of the movie that was thrown out. And we went back and started all over again. Why was that? Because it was not good. <laughs> no other way of putting it. It was flip. Yeah. It was, it was, there was, it was a little on the cruel side. It wasn't about, it was, it wasn't about people getting along, toys getting along at adventure. It was about a bunch of toys bickering in a cynical kind of fashion. Mm -hmm. And uh, it didn't work. And so uh, at the time when, you know, John Lasseter came back and just said, you know, the, you know, the last 18 months of work that we did, well, we're throwing that out, and we're going to come in, and we're going to do it all over again. And I said, you know, all right. It's whatever the whatever the movie needs to be made. Then yeah. after that, you get into kind of like a corporate structure. Of, yeah. The second one was going to go straight to video. 
Really? Yes. And both Tim and I yeah. who got to know each other. And yeah. we, we actually still, we still meet up about once a month and just sit down and talk about the state of the world. And Just because you hit it off. Because we were both really different guys at really different places, yeah. but we were united in this thing that was bigger than ourselves mm -hmm. that surprised us. And we have an awful lot in common and we are two totally different guys yeah. all, all at the same time. The second, both he and I were getting involved in the second one, and it was gonna, they were gonna pay us, you know, a fine chunk of money, and we were gonna do a thing that was gonna go right to, right to video. And he, he, because he was working at Disney at the time, so he was beating the living daylights over everybody he could do, Michael Eisner, who was mm -hmm. there, you're nuts, you're crazy. Mm -hmm. And I would go in and actually, unbeknownst to him the first time, I said, could you guys just roll the DAT, just roll the digital audio tape. And let me just say this, who's ever in charge of this, if you're not gonna release this in the seat, you're nuts, guys, yeah. this yeah. is great. There's no reason just to go straight to video. Is it gonna be, I swear to God, I'm not, I'm not, you think it's gonna be expensive to do? Well, that's okay. Cause I I think it'll make a billion dollars. <laughs> I was joking when right. I said that, but then it, it turned into like that kind of thing. And Why then, do you think that? So they didn't see that? What, what was the... They were operating by an economic model that yeah. didn't take into, I think, a degree of serendipity. The, the right. model at the time was if you have a really big hit yeah. in the theaters, make a sequel for half as much money and put it out on, D, on, on video and it'll, it'll, it'll make a ton. It was just an economic model that they were folding. Now, to their credit, even to you know Michael uh, Michael Eisner's credit yeah. at the time, they said, "Okay, we'll take a shot at that," and that was actually a type of show business economy that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was literally like a a one shot chance in order to in order to do it like that. Now I'm not you know all I was just saying at the time was this is too good just to come out on home video. Right. That's all I was saying. Right. This is you really this is this might actually yeah. be a better movie than the first one that we made. It says something bigger, and the technology was going to be raised up more. Was Steve Jobs ever uh, somebody that was involved with, that you dealt with on this uh, stuff? Yeah, there was a time when there was real big corporate negotiations that were going on, and there was a, there was a period of time, I think, where the battle between Pixar and Disney was going on and what was going to happen. And there was, there was a moment where I think there was some brand of conference call with Tim and I on uh -huh. it, and they wanted us, he wanted us to join up and say, we won't do it unless blank, blank, blank. And <laughs> I don't know if we were, I can't remember if we were in the room or not together, but I just thought, is that, that's protecting a corporate interest as opposed to an artistic one. Right. Now, for a guy, I guess, like Steve Jobs, it was no different. <laughs> It's true. But yeah. I'm not Steve Jobs. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, Tim and I were not right. exactly no. in that kind of thing. Uh, because, I, oh, I think it was because, because Disney owned Toy Story. Right. You know, right. but then they worked it all out and then became Pixar, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. And something, something happened. I, did, I don't, I don't, I, I was just operating it from an act kind of thing. Like, are you telling me that I can't do a really good job that I like to do? I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's the way this works down here <laughs> at this end of the food chain right, anyway. Right, right. Just looking at other, uh, the next of the sort of things that I know in hindsight we may look at it one way, but in the moment, Castaway would seem like another one where could have really huge, gone off the rails. Thrill. That was yeah. a deep, deep throw that came all about all because of Bob Zemeckis. So you're back with him six years after Forrest Gump. Yeah. People have said, you know, you are great in scenes by 
yourself some in a, in a number of different situations, going back to the late night calls in Sleepless in Seattle, going to visiting Jenny's grave in Forrest Gump, oh dear, yeah, yeah. stuff with Captain Phillips. But I think this is a, a whole movie of, of that. Was that as scary to you as I would imagine? It, it was be? not for me no? because I that was the that movie came out of our own house. I came up with the idea. I had about a third of what the movie could be. Bill Broyles, who wrote the screenplay, I just happened to mention it in passing. We were actually talking about another project that never came to be. And he said, well, wait a minute. Let's go back to that thing. What are you talking about? At that time, I called it Chuck of the Jungle. <laughs> so let's go back and talk about Chuck of the Jungle. Right. And so he came up with this other third, and we were looking for the last third. And first, Bob said no. But then Bob came back and said, you know, because we were saying, you know, he, the first time when he said no, he said, you guys haven't figured out the thing. And I said, and we kept trying to figure out. We kept mm -hmm. trying to figure out. We turned, and then Bob figured it out, the last third of the movie. So literally a third, a third, a third. Mm -hmm. My luck on that is because I've been, I had been thinking about it for six years by the time we got around to it. said, I only thought about it as the guy who was inhabiting Chuck. I didn't, I didn't think about the logistics. I didn't think about the timeline. I didn't think about production. I didn't think about anything except what about this beard? Mm -hmm. What about the weight and what about the beard? Because mm -hmm. I actually have to do that myself. Mm -hmm. And when Bob said, well, you know, if we had any guts, <laughs> we'd shoot half the movie and then you take a year off, lose all the weight, grow a beard, and we'd shoot the second half of the movie. And initially that was like, I, the studio first said, are you kidding? <laughs> and Bob said, no. Nah. <laughs> and the, the solution was for him to direct a movie in the year between. Yeah. And that's exactly what he made. Yeah. He made uh, What Lies Beneath right. with the same crew. So everybody was still yeah. all together. Uh, and so he delivered two movies to uh, Fox at the time while I, while I took the year off in order to lose weight and grow a beard. And I got screwed up because I dislocated my shoulder because we were, were on a research scout for Band of Brothers, right. believe it or not. And I fell in a Nazi hole in Berchtesgarten oh and God. dislocated my shoulder. So I lost about eight weeks of, uh, oh of my, my workout. But luckily, there was a, I was skinny enough and there was some CGI that was able to go along yeah. and help us. But no one <laughs> would do that now. Well, I'm not going to say no one because I think there's a lot of, Good movies that, that like uh, the low series that just they stop for seven years and they well, like let everybody boyhood. go up. Yeah, like yeah. Boyhood. Yeah. But um, we could not, there was no way to shoot that movie all at once because you had a 60 pounds heavier me with no beard and a 170 pound me with a really long beard. And you can't apply a beard. You no. can't do that. There was just no other way of doing it. And the studio let us. <laughs> but along with that then came a constant kind of experimentation of why we, were, why we were doing it. There's a version of the script in which Chuck talks to himself a lot. And as soon as we got to the island, I said, Bob, there's, only, there's no reason to talk to myself. Right. The only reason for me to say anything is when he thinks someone else is here. I said, well, <laughs> well, that'd be Wilson. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and so this logic just kept playing out because we not only were we working from a script and a blueprint and, you know, the special effects budget and all that other kind of stuff that we had actually had a really massive yeah. free hand just to behave. And that's, that's what I ended up reacting to in a big way. Now, that being said, we had a movie that worked 98% fabulously and in two percent of the movie it completely dropped off 
we did not have the punctuation right at the end of the movie, and we were missing something from the typewriter keys, and we did not know what that was. And we talked about it and talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. Once I was driving, I was on a college tour with my daughter, mm -hmm. and I got Bill and Bob on the, on the speakerphone, and we're trying to say, well, what if we did this? What if we tried that? Blah, blah, blah. And when Bob came up with the, the sensibility of, you know, we don't know, we don't know what Chuck figured out. We shot a single scene on Friday after Thanksgiving for the movie that came out the Wednesday after Thanksgiving. What? Wait, is that the quickest turnaround you've ever had? That First of all, some people said it's not possible. Yeah. And then Bob said, yeah, it is. It's just it's just getting it on the prints. Yeah. So if we postpone the prints up to this, it was just one simple shot. It was just me talking about the tide coming in. That's all it was. But it was it was the period on the end of the movie. And there's an example of how fluid films can be, yeah. is that you can be as late as the Friday before it comes out on Wednesday. And you can get it, cut it, put it in, post it, and it can, and it can be That's there. I mean, it was lickety-split. Yeah, that was, that was an amazing thing. So with somebody that you've worked with repeatedly, like Bob, like Steven, would there ever be an outright... No, it's just not for me. Or will you work it out? Well, with, no, there yeah. is. There's been any number of times where yeah. it, it's about what the what the thing itself is. Yeah. All that every time I've worked with all both anytime anytime I've worked with anybody more than once. Yeah. It was because I went to them and said, "Hey, you got to let me do this." Mm -hmm. uh, and if it's not there, then you can't do it. I don't get it. Uh, it's not for me. I don't have anything that I can I can bring to it. But it's and interesting. I, like, catch me if you can. That oh, yeah. is essentially a supporting part, right? People don't expect Tom Hanks to play a supporting part. Why was it because it was Steven and you just knew nope, that the oh, no, here's what it was. Yeah. Here's what it was. I read it as a script, an example of the screenwriting of Scott Frank. Mm -hmm. Just because I heard he was great. Mm -hmm. And I read it. And as soon as I read it, and I said, This is Javert. <laughs> yeah. You can't have Les Miserables without Javert. Right. You gotta have somebody good chasing this guy. So I I literally said, look, I just read this. Walter Parks, as well as Stephen, and eventually it called a Leo that said, would you guys consider me for this? Because I think this is a great part. I think this is a dogged, mm -hmm. dedicated expert at what he is doing that needs to be constantly yapping at the heels of Frank Abagnale vis-a-vis -vis Leo, Leo DiCaprio. And uh, they said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then I did call Leo and I said, hey, is it, look, I, I don't want to, this is your movie. I don't want to horn in on it, but I would really like, if, if it's okay, you know, if you don't, if you don't want me to, I get it. And he said, no, I think it'd be, I think it'd be great. And from that, because, I mean, it's, certainly it's nice to work with Steven, you yeah. know, it's, uh, it's, it's good work all the way around. But I, I just saw the, an opportunity. I had not applied, not, not played a part like that right. before. And I wanted to, I wanted to be essentially a guy with a government job who loves chasing down fraudulent guys. <laughs> I just, I, I just got it as soon as I read it. How about the idea of a real person who could be called a hero, which ties up all the way through beautiful day in the neighborhood where it's explicitly discussed this, you know, it's the whole driving thing here is he's being profiled yeah. for an issue, a hero's issue of Esquire. But you have played a number of, of real heroes. 
and you know, I guess hero is on the. It's a sort of. I think that's a tough kind word. Of buzzword. Yeah. You know, it has this kind of like connotations. But let's just let's just mention people that could be called a hero. And and it's interesting because these are within the last decade. There's been a number of these guys: Richard Phillips, Captain Phillips, James B. Donovan, Bridge yeah, of Spies, yes, yeah. Chesley Sullenberger, Sully. Ben Bradley, The Post. That's right. Oh, I forgot about Ben. Yeah, yeah. And yes. now uh, Fred Rogers. And I just want to ask you, you I know you read a ton of nonfiction. You're... That's how I entertain myself on Saturday nights. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> Stay great. home and read nonfiction. And I mean, this goes back to Jim Lovell, of course. Yeah, Jim Lovell. That was the granddaddy of them all. But is it... What's the appeal of, of, of playing a guy like that? And do you, is there a hazard to doing it too? There is a massive hazard yeah. that you have to have allies in the creative process. Yeah. And those allies, and you have to see eye to eye on what you are not going to make up. Because uh, you work with a lot of people who say, you know, well, you got it. The rules of cinema is you got to have an inflex moment of jeopardy or conflict as of page 27. <laughs> and I'm the type of guy who says conflict is inherent to the endeavor. We don't have to juice up conflict. And Jim Lovell, I mean, that, that, was, that was really a big one, right, to begin with. Um, I mean, because I, you know, I grew up on all things Apollo anyway. Mm -hmm. And there were t two aspects of that is one is the heartbreak of a guy who pet swings around the far side of the moon for the second time. All those Apollo guys are incredibly competitive, very driven. Not all of them like each other. Right. And almost all of them, I could also say, ask this question, how come he gets a mission? Right. How come I don't get a mission? He gets a mission and I don't get a mission. So with Jim up there doing that, at that point, he was the most traveled man in the history of uh, the Earth. He had been in space around the moon. He'd been in outer space longer than anybody else. Mm. And that, that heartbreak coupled with... Timing, uh, providence, the work of 800 people down on the ground in order to get it. If a hero is somebody who voluntarily goes into, into a situation that for which he puts, voluntarily places himself in danger, all right. But at the same time, you ain't going to keep any of those astronauts not from flying to the moon. So hero or hubris, you know, which, which, which one do you have? Everybody else um, that I was able to talk to, Charlie Wilson uh, mm -hmm. was one of them, uh, Charlie Wilson's war. Why they did it in the first place is fascinating to me. Yeah. And it's always different. I know it's always my countenance, but it's always different. Charlie Wilson did not take on the Soviet Union for the same reasons that Sully Sullenberger landed the plane. <laughs> I can tell you that right, right. now. Right. But I will say that Richard Phillips loved his life at sea as much as James Donovan loved his life in a, on a debating table. They lived for it. And that kind of like innate passion and drive is a thing you get to carry around in your pocket, provided you are able to honestly find it on film. I, the guys that I've met with, Rich Phillips, Sully, Charlie when he was still alive, 
I always say, look, I'm going to, and if I said this in the last time mm-hmm. we got a podcast, but I, right. I've since said it to other people, That's so right. it all works out. I said it to Joanne, listen, Fred Rogers is going to say things he never said, right. be places he never was, and do things he never did. Right. Outside of that, I still want it to be 100% accurate, you know, because there is a DNA, there is a cause and effect, there is a, a primal motivation for what they do that is completely particular to them and to the circumstance. When I talk to a guy like Sully, for example, who is the most engineered mind on the planet, the idea of what flying is, how you fly, what it means to fly, what your responsibilities are, what he himself took very, very seriously, the things he loved about the aviation industry, the things he hated about the Indian aviation industry, all had to be right there. But what it comes, what it come down to it, what was the biggest, biggest concern there? And I... I will say this for me, I'm not speaking for mm-hmm. some, that it would have been the shame and humiliation of tragedy if anybody had died on that plane. Mm-hmm. He would have been the cause for it. His job is to get everybody there safely. And it is just as fraught with danger when, the, when nothing goes wrong <laughs> and you're just flying from LaGuardia to Charlotte as opposed to when geese hit the fan yeah. and, uh, and, uh, uh, and you have to land on the water. So you'd kind of think, and I think it's easy in order to say that, oh, because you play all these nonfiction roles right now. Yeah, but I only, I only go at it if we keep that bullshit to an absolute <laughs> minimum. And a lot of times the, you're associated with people that don't care if you're putting some bullshit up there or not. And uh, I understand, you, you know, look, you, you have to do it right. But, and this is the stuff that we produce as well. Because yeah. uh, at, the, at the company we've done... There's stuff in John Adams that I absolutely love, and there's stuff in John Adams that we sort of made up. Right. But nonetheless, the DNA is still there. The Pacific, anything we've done yeah, that yeah. has been not, you know, what do we call nonfiction entertainment, which is not just a documentary and the documentary footage, but the stuff that we end up right. recreate. Getting past that idea of, well, you know, we need, it's got to be goosed up a little bit here. And I always want to say, they are jumping out of a plane <laughs> into Nazi Germany. Right. What needs to be goosed right. up? Right. Oh, we got to need to know about the men. Here's what you need to know about the men. They're in a plane. <laughs> They're 19 years old. They've been training for this for, for the last three years. And some of them are going to die in three hours. That, that's all that you, that you need to know. What's the equivalent of that for Fred Rogers, though, in the sense that... Well, interesting. Yeah. It ends up being the same sieve of authenticity that you have to even push Fred Rogers through. And in this case, it's... I was saying, you know, forgive me, I'm a little too glib because we've been talking about no. Fred Rogers to this thing. It's like if you ask your average adult about Fred Rogers... They think he's either a saint or a fraud, (laughs) right? Right. Is he a saint because he was able to get past the frailties that every human being has and go beyond that and create what he did? Or is he a fraud because he actually did have the same frailties as every human being did, but pretended that he did not? Well, he never pretended anything. What he did was reflect. He did do a jujitsu kind of move. He did make it about you much more than than it was about him. You think, well, so what is the jeopardy that's involved? Well, to the credit of, of what the screenwriters did and the boss, Mari Hella, saw yeah. was going in that, it's you, the, the character of Lloyd played by Matthew Reese. He's the guy who is 
is changed by Fred. Yeah. The fa- it's not a biopic. It's not this thing that says this is how Fred Rogers discovered puppetry or anything <laughs> like that. But what it is, it ends up being an examination, I think, of Fred Rogers' ministry, which a lot, I got to give credit to that documentary. Yeah. Uh, uh, Won't you be, be my, my neighbor? neighbor. Yeah. There was so much in there that I think that was the first time I said, I've never read a documentary get these kind of reviews. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a documentary do this kind of business. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Mm-hmm. And I hadn't seen it when we started doing what this was, uh, when we started working on it and then go with it. The stuff that I not only found out, but then later confirmed in our own research and expanded upon in getting ready to do it was this ministry that he uh, he held. You know, his great spiritual teacher is the theological advisor whose name I cannot remember. Forgive me. I don't have my notes. (laughs) Um, He was going to be a Presbyterian minister, and he didn't want to have a church. And his his main advisor said he convinced the, what do you call it, the Presbyterians, to say, you have to make him a minister because his ministry is this TV show. And his, his congregation is going to be every two and a half, three and a half, four and a half year old kid that's on the other side of the screen. And they put their foot down for a while and they wouldn't do it. But then, then when they did and his, if you're going to break it down to what was the single thing he was trying to do for his congregation, that was let them know that they are safe. Let them know that it's okay to have any feeling you're having. Talking about it is really good, but don't. Don't be frightened by any feeling you're having because we all have. Are you scared? It's okay to be scared. Are you sad? It's okay to be sad. Are you happy? It's okay to be happy. Uh, and, and that is like, whew, that ends up being a, um, an oddly powerful message that has more resonance than I anticipated. I mean, there are people that coming out, and I, I, th- I don't know what the, uh, I don't necessarily know other than I, I think it is a, the, it's a reprieve from cynicism. Yeah, because a very cynicism, cynical time. Yeah. Cyni- uh, cynicism is our default setting in yeah. all of this kind of stuff. And uh, guess what? It, it could be an option as opposed to something that you actually, you know, have to, uh, have to fall into. Well, can't thank you enough. This is awesome. Oh, I enjoyed the chat. Thanks. All we're doing is talking about movies. Who can't do that? No, Unfortunately, they were all mine. I, that's <laughs> a good thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> thanks again. <laughs> thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.